Who's ready for the word today? I guess I'll preach. All right. Hey, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to give you, in our opening text, I'm actually going to read three passages of Scripture, short passages, um, and I want to see if, as I read these three passages, if you can kind of connect where we're going with the message today, if you can see the consistent theme throughout these verses. So if you have your Bible, you may want to flip quickly. If you can keep up, we're in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 3, and Romans 12. If you can't, don't worry. We got it on the screen. So 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, just by show of hands, just curious, how many people, if you had to pick what you think the message is about today, think that you would know? Good number of people. All right. So how many caught or picked up on through these verses that we see the picture or the explanation of our physical bodies being referred to as temples. Did you catch that? So this is New Testament language, right? Now, it's not a New Testament concept, but it is a new idea that's being introduced in the New Testament that our bodies are being viewed as a temple. So let's talk about that for just a second to set this up. The listeners, especially the Jewish listeners of the messages that are being taught in the New Testament there uh, around the temple being a holy place, that would not be a foreign concept to them, right? If we go all the way back, we know that God instructed Moses to build a tabernacle, which he said would be a dwelling place for his spirit, right? He would come and actually fill and occupy that place with his presence And get this, because his presence filled the place, a holy God came into that place and and filled it. Because of that, that place became holy and sacred or set apart. Does that make sense? We go forward to the temple. Solomon built the temple. We know there's a second temple, but God says, I will fill that temple and my presence will be there That will be a holy place set apart, sacred. The view of that temple, of that structure, from all of culture would look upon that and they would regard that place as holy and sacred, sanctified and set apart. The the number one reason for that place to be there was to be a dwelling place for the presence of God. So because of that, it was treated with great honor and great significance, great esteem, right? We know that even the way the priests went about their responsibilities to go into the temple, 
They cleansed themselves. They changed clothes. They did all these things to show the honor and regard for the presence of God that had filled this place. Well, we see here in the New Testament, language is being introduced. It's not a foreign concept of temple uh, and a holy place and sacred, but a new concept that's being introduced is that our physical bodies are now being referred to as temples or dwelling places for God, which makes sense. It's consistent with Jesus's teachings, right? Jesus said, I'm going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit. He's going to come and live inside of you. He's going to guide you. He's going to comfort you. He's going to speak to you. So, so the presence of God by the person of the Holy Spirit comes to indwell born-again believers, those who've given their hearts to Christ. And because of that, the connection is being made here that it's no different than the honor and regard that were being given to the other temples. It's just now, it's a temple not made with human hands. So because God's spirit comes to indwell our human bodies, the greatest purpose, listen to me, the greatest purpose to which our bodies must now serve is that they are a dwelling place for the presence of God. Does that make sense? It's a major shift and a major change in the thinking. It's kind of an overhaul that now our bodies, he says, listen, if you caught this in the first passage, he said, it's not your own. Think about that for a second, because this is, this is not something that even a lot of Christians would necessarily connect with. In our modern day culture, you know, you hear things like, hey, it's your body, do what you want with it, it's your body, and, and that's man's philosophy, you know, philosophical uh, logic from man's ways can kind of support that, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says your body's actually not your own. And why is it not your own? Because it's been purchased and bought by another. <laughs> it says because God purchased you with his spirit and he decides to come and live on the inside of you, you can no longer claim it as your own. Yes, you know, it's me, it's my body, but really God owns it and there's a shift in our mindset when we get that, that I actually don't own this body, I am a steward of this body, because now the greatest purpose that it's serving is that it's a, it's a house for God. It's a place where God's spirit is now occupying. This is a very important message because we're going to talk about, the title of the message today is, The Battle for the Temple. The Battle for the Temple. Because once this shift was made, the honor and regard that was given to the physical body changed completely. Now, all of a sudden, the esteem and the way it was stewarded, the way the body is treated is, is completely different for people who are hearing this message because God lives here now, and my body is serving a greater purpose. Before I came to know Christ, God's spirit wasn't living in me, you know, just a body, whatever, but God's spirit comes to live inside of me, everything changes. Now it's a dwelling place. So the first point, if you're taking notes here, uh, and, and ask yourself this question, is my body a holy temple? Is my body a holy temple? And hopefully you can see and agree that that's what, what Paul is trying to get us to see is that it should be. In fact, if we want to walk out 
the fullness of God's purposes and destiny for us, I just got to tell you, we have to get a hold of this revelation. We have to be people who are led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And if I don't tell you that and teach you that, I'm failing you. (laughs) Because light can have no fellowship with darkness. The things of God cannot have fellowship with sin and the things of the flesh of this world. And so we are going to see today great news of how we've been given authority to live a life to where we're not dominated by the flesh, okay? But the first point, if you're taking notes, is the body is for the Lord. The body is for the Lord. And that might be a revelation for people today. Never really thought of it like that. Because it's for the Lord. It's the highest purpose to which our physical bodies serve. It's a temple. It's a, it's a dwelling place for God. I remember whenever Katie and I, uh, early in our marriage, before we started having kids, our second home, we built this house, and we built it uh, rather large and spacious to support our goal of having a growing family, and, and we, we, we accomplished that, um, <laughs> and I nailed that one, actually, and so when we first built it, and there was plenty of space and plenty of square footage, but it was just her and I, one of the things that I did was upstairs, I had them leave walls out so that we could create a man cave, a space just for me. And we put a TV up there for sports, and we'd have Super Bowl parties, and I had a pool table and an air hockey table. I mean, this, this area of the home was set up to do things that would serve, I just say it, like some of the things that I wanted to do, right? Am I making sense? So that was the purpose. And then we kind of made this strong leap from one child to three, or yeah, one to three, because our second pregnancy was twins, and it became obvious that the man cave was going to die. We needed that space now. So, pool table came out, air hockey table came out, TV came down, walls went up. Guess what else went in there? Crib, changing table, different paint, different decorations. Now, how many of you have been through this before where you're getting the baby room ready before the baby gets here? And it, it is one of the greatest joys and experiences, right? So, this was not done begrudgingly. This was done... In excitement. We were preparing the way. And we did all this work to get the space ready, but everything that was being done was to support, get this, the blessing that was about ready to arrive and occupy that place. It was no longer to serve me. It was to serve a different purpose. And what made that space special, frankly, had nothing to do with all of the cosmetic decorations and the furniture and all that nice stuff, that stuff was pointless and useless without the life that came to live on the inside of there. That's what I'm saying is like there's a shift that our minds make, right, when we see, hey, God's life, his spirit is now living on the inside of me. This body is a temple for that. I hope you never stop being amazed by that. 
I am frankly astonished and in awe. I, I can't even wrap my human mind around this idea that the God of the universe comes in fullness, not diminished form, to live on the inside of little old me. It just blows me away, and I hope it never stops blowing you away. But Paul's wanting to get a little bit of an overhaul to their understanding and thinking of how they treat their physical bodies. All right, now listen to this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. That's good to hear, isn't it? Because he's saying, yeah, you have freedom to do certain things, but it doesn't mean that your freedoms will necessarily lead to things that are good for you. So just because you're free to do something doesn't mean that you shouldn't use restraint in the way you use that freedom, right? He goes on to say this in verse uh, 12 again, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any, speaking about addictions now. Right, becoming slaves to these things. Foods are for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. Now listen, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. I love this. The body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's the purpose that it's supposed to serve. This was a major shift for these people because in Corinth, the New Testament church, many of them uh, are Gentiles, and they are accustomed to the Greek form of worship, which is pantheistic. Many gods and goddesses and temples and shrines, and they actually devoted themselves very sincerely to their worship and to their gods. They, they were very reverent in the way that they went about that. Uh, however, they regarded their human bodies as insignificant. The soul was very important. Eternity was very important. Godly worship was very important, but they had this idea that the body was just kind of like a source of pleasure for oneself body's going to die, so what does it matter? It's kind of that mentality that I have a craving, I need to satisfy it. Might as well be happy, might as well pleasure myself. If the body wants it, the body gets it. Doesn't really matter. The soul is what is important. This was the pervading mentality. And Paul's saying, we got to have an overhaul. That's actually not how this is supposed to work. The body probably wouldn't be significant if it weren't for a very important fact. God's spirit actually lives there now. He's made his home in you. So you can no longer disregard your physical body. Say it this way. You can no longer partake of the desires and the passions and the temptations of the flesh like you once did and expect to walk out a life of godliness. Anybody getting that? What does he also do? He says this in verse 14. He says, and God both raised up the Lord, who will also raise us up by his power. Hold on. I'm going to come to that in just a second. I forgot to say this. The slogan in Corinth was this. Everything is permissible. Everything is allowed when it comes to the physical body. And so they just kind of like used it and abused it. Eventually, they're just going to discard it. 
Now, Katie and I, we have a little bit of a different view in our household on how we approach some of our stationary products, specifically paper towels. So my wife, and I love her for this, and she's way better at it than I am, admittedly, she is very thrifty and frugal. So our paper towels are the half sheet of paper towels. Hold on. (laughs) But whenever we sit down, the half sheets get torn in half. So from my perspective, we all have a fourth of a sheet of paper towels. I don't even want to tell you how she handles the toilet paper. (laughs) Kidding. 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 But my mentality is, man, we sit down and have a meal, slap three or four of those suckers down next to me, the highly absorbent ones, and I'm just going to rip through them and use whatever I want and throw them away because there's way more left. It doesn't really matter anyway. Some of you are like Katie. Some of you are like me, right? In this analogy, she would be correct. We don't just use and abuse our bodies like It's just something to be discarded, and it doesn't really matter. But that was the view of the people in Corinth. And honestly, I think it's probably a pervading mentality, even in culture today. Satisfy yourself. You need to be happy. What you need is for you to please yourself. You deserve it. You need to have what you want. Ever heard these things before? I hate to tell you, but that's totally contradictory to Christian theology, (laughs) And so Paul's working through that. But again, he says in verse 14, God raised us up, raised up the Lord, and he will raise us up by his power. I want you to ask yourself this question. Why did he say that right there? Why is he talking about the resurrection of the dead? Many are familiar with the idea, the, the theological principle that we will receive new bodies, heavenly bodies, right? That's true. He, he brings that into this discussion. He says, you know, the body is for the Lord, Lord's for the body. Don't partake in sexual immorality or any, look, sins of the flesh, sexual immorality, which has many different forms, all the way down to what we entertain in our mind and the thoughts that we harbor and what we do with that and how that gets acted out in the flesh. I mean, there's so many ways that that can run rampant. Addictions, substance abuse, gluttonous behavior with different kinds of foods and things. I mean, this all kind of like lusts and, and sins of the flesh, right? And so he says that the body is for the Lord and not for these things. And then he end, it adds on the end of that, and the, the Lord raised up Jesus from the dead, and he'll raise us up too. Why does he talk about the resurrection? You may have never thought about this before. And I was pondering this, like, why did he put that there? And I think the Lord wants us to see something that's very important so that we grasp how the honor and regard we give to our bodies needs to be understood. You see, the resurrection of the dead is the time after Christ returns, and we will all be, it says, changed, transformed, and then we will receive new heavenly bodies. But it also says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's throw verse 42 up there. At the resurrection of the dead, the body, physical body, is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So here's the point. When we receive new heavenly bodies, 
God doesn't start over from nothing. Our earthly bodies that are committed to the dust of the ground are actually changed and transformed into our heavenly bodies. Jesus was resurrected, agreed? Walked among them in, in resurrected body. The tomb was empty. The fleshly body that, was, that deity was clothed in, that died, went into the tomb, but it was gone when he was resurrected. The earthly body is transformed and changed miraculously into the heavenly body. Why is that such a big deal? Well, here's why it's a big deal to me. If the plant, as he uses in his analogy, that comes forth and grows is given honor and regard, then the seed must be given honor and regard as well. If the heavenly body that we will receive that's in corruption is to be a transformed and changed state of our earthly body, then that tells me I need to view my earthly body as the seed to which that thing is going to come forth from. It's a miracle, no doubt, in how God goes about that, but it nonetheless suggests to us that the way we honor this earthly body is of great significance to God. Does that make sense? So point number one was the, the body is for the Lord. Point number two, we can reign over sin. And some people hear that and they think, man, how's that even possible? Well, I assure you that it is. The Bible makes that clear. But anything without God like this is not possible. But with him, nothing is impossible. And so let me do a summary because I, I really struggled to figure out how to break certain passages out of Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. And I'm just going to do sort of a summary for you of how Paul breaks this down. He says that when we surrender to Christ, we, were, we are buried with him. The old man dies just as Christ, was die, Christ died. And then as Christ was resurrected, the new man in us comes forth, is brought forth to life. And he says this. He says, now, by the, by the man Jesus Christ, you ought to reign in life. And he says that sin should no longer have dominion over your earthly bodies. So what he's saying is, Jesus just freed you from the nature of sin and death that separated you from him for all of eternity. And the same spirit of God that did that is in you so that you can now rule over the temptations of the flesh and not just satisfy the cravings and desires that you once had. He says you should now be dead to sin, or reign over that in your bodies. Make sense? That's a powerful, powerful thing. It means you're no longer subject to being a spirit that's actually ruled by the flesh. You're actually in a place now where your spirit should be able to rule over the flesh so that the flesh just doesn't get what it wants all the time, satisfying its own cravings and desires, because let me ask you something. If the flesh is weak, how can the spirit be strong? Right? I mean, he says, and listen to how he words this in a few passages. Um, let's go 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He says, I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. 
I love this. He says, I have to take authority over my flesh. I have to discipline my body or I'm a wayward man led astray. I bring it under subjection. We have to do that. We, we can do that. And, he's, and I love the part he attaches to the end. He says, if I don't, I become disqualified to all I preach, all the people I preach to. I could say it this way. Whatever you're called to do, however you represent and, and, and are an ambassador for God in your context, the marketplace, church, wherever it's at, like if we don't bring our bodies under subjection and the flesh leads, then we don't have a good testimony. Agreed? That's what he's saying. Like you, you got, you're given power to reign over sin, so reign over it. Don't be led by the flesh because that's, that's a bad testimony. You don't have to live that way anymore. That's the great news, right? People who are, you know, they can't say no to addiction or temptation or this or that. Like, it doesn't have to be that way. You can actually subdue that stuff, take authority over that, and the flesh not have its way. I think that's why fasting is such a good spiritual discipline because you force the flesh not to get what it wants for however long you do that. And then the spirit becomes the stronger part of you. It's what's actually ruined. It's a great spiritual discipline. But Paul's saying, you know, it's so important. He says this in Colossians 3, 5, put to death your members. He's not talking about members in the church. Be a bad one to take out of context, okay? But don't you, don't you love that? Put to death. Put him to death. He, he says it in Galatians 5 this way. He says, crucify the flesh. Crucify it. And in that whole chapter, chapter 5 of Galatians, he says, Here's the reality. The flesh and the spirit that's in you, God's spirit, those two things, they're always contrary, which means constantly colliding up against each other. They never want the same thing, he says. So the flesh and the spirit are always at war. Let me ask you this, which will win? Right, because he says that you should walk in the spirit as you've been made alive in the it hit me one day, I was praying, or reading these texts, and God just hit me with this revelation, like, you, people could, because grammatically, there's two parts to that structure, right? He says, you, as you're alive in the spirit, which is born again in spiritual life, walk in the spirit, which is your, your walk in this world towards godliness. So it means people could be alive in the spirit, but not necessarily walking in the spirit. He's saying, you've got to have that authority in your walk. He says, crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, so that it is not the ruling part of your life. And then he says in 2 Peter, he says, God has given us all things that we need for both life and godliness. Right? So you say, well, this sounds incredibly difficult. It is, if it weren't for the fact that God, this is what blows me away, so the very presence of God that comes to live on the inside of me, that causes me to honor and regard my physical body in a totally different way, that same presence and power that's come to make this vessel holy, to be sanctified, is the same power and presence that actually enables me to stay devoted to my walk of godliness. I think that's incredible. God doesn't say, hey, do this, and then follow a bunch of rules. He says, I've called you to holiness. Be holy because I'm holy, because the 
I'm, I'm occupying that place, and I'll give you the power to endure and actually rule over the flesh as you walk by faith and not by sight. That's awesome, isn't it? He never leaves us hanging. But the flesh and the spirit, I mean, how many know the struggle is real? Do you not know that? It is real. Wake up tomorrow and look at the wrong thing. The struggle is real. The flesh is always trying to pull us away from the things that God wants. And we have to be in a place as we walk out our lives where we subdue that so that we are not, as Proverbs says, somebody who has no rule over their spirit is like a city broken down without walls. And anything can just walk right in and have its way. We're to be defensible, to know when sin begins to just come knocking at our door, like, no, I, I will not allow that to move in and get a place. And we could be strong in the way we go about this, resisting those temptations of the flesh. Uh, point number three is the double-minded downfall. So it's a battle for the temple, right? My vessel is holy. It's sacred. It's to be set apart. Get this. God's will and purpose for the human body that is born into a world of brokenness and of sin, it's this, to be saved, to be sanctified, and to be raised. That's the whole plan for the body. Saved, sanctified now, holy to God, serving God's purposes, and then eventually raised into incorruption. That's his plan. And so in order for us to go through that, Here's what can happen if we're not vigilant, strong, is the double-minded downfall. And James describes this. He says, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And he describes it like this. It's, he's like a, he or she, obviously, right, uh, is like a wave in the sea tossed around by the wind, wherever it takes it. That's a double-minded man. Now, double-minded literally means, when you break it down, it's two words put together in the Greek, di, di, which is a prefix, and psychos or sukos, which means soul. It means to have a divided soul or to be spiritually schizophrenic. Wow. It means I hear the things of God, I want the things of God, but I feed the flesh, but I give the flesh what it wants. I satisfy my cravings and pleasures. I want the things of God, but I, I give the flesh. And he says that person is unstable in all of their ways, like a wave in the sea tossed around by the wind, which means have no direction of their own. They will go wherever the cultural influences externally around them lead them. They have no direction of their own. They're like a wave is completely helpless. It's just going to go where the wind chooses. That's a double-minded person. Totally inconsistent, totally unstable. Have you ever thought to yourself, um, like you know somebody that's in a really bad place or they've done something terrible or, or whatever, and you think to yourself, I never in a million years would have thought that person would do that or that person would say that. Have you ever had that occur? Well, let me tell you something. It didn't happen overnight, right? But as sin continues to come in and get a place, we, we, we want the things of godliness, but we're, we're filling, our things with the, filling ourselves with things of the flesh that are sinful, 
all of a sudden, it's like we're a wayward person, a wayward vessel. We've got no direction of our own. Double-minded, meaning totally deceived. And if you ever notice, people in this place can convince themselves of anything. Somehow it's okay to compromise on all of these things that are really sinful and yet still believe we're walking out God's plan. It's totally contradictory, yet for them it's completely validated. And they'll dig their heels in. Because to admit wrong in that is to have their entire belief system unravel. <laughs> Is that making sense to anybody? And, and so that's the threat of like this double-minded living that James is talking about that can begin to set in and occur. And, and somebody like that, listen, they're totally led by their flesh. They have no self-control, which by the way, let me say this, self-control is not like a matter of a mental discipline. Like I'm, I'm strong mentally, I'm gonna have self-control. The Bible defines self-control as a fruit of the Spirit, which fruit is produced by the life that flows through the vine. So self-control is not a fleshly, natural exercise of your mind. It's actually a fruit of the Spirit that is coming from the life of God that flows through you as you maintain intimacy and closeness in your walk with Him. When I'm close to God, my self-control is stronger. Right, And so people who are double-minded, they just no self-control. They want to live for God, but they can't. And listen, they're battered by sin in every area of their life. They come to a complete realization of what it means when the Bible says that sin will bring levels of destruction. Relationships get destroyed. The bodies get destroyed. All kinds of things get destroyed. And, and they ultimately, as Paul said, they don't have a good testimony. But I'm telling you, it doesn't have to be that way. And I would even say this. Young people, they can get a hold of this early on, how to rule over their flesh. They don't have to wait years to figure this out. They can actually rule their flesh in, in, if they get a hold of this, even at a very young age, which I think is something incredibly important for us to be teaching in our churches. Don't, don't buy into this cultural, humanistic, pervading view that you just need to be happy, so you should do whatever you want to make yourself happy, and that's what matters. Nonsense. Nonsense. You need to serve God with your body, and what he says to do is what you need to do, and you need to take authority over the temptations of the flesh. Live strong. Be pure. That's what you need to do. It's not okay. It's not acceptable. That's bad doctrine, and if that becomes your truth, it'll lead you in all kinds of different destructions in your life. See where those people are to pick up the pieces when that philosophy fails you because they won't be able to help you. Oh, but the thing is, just like that example where I said, have you known anybody or whatever, you thought, wow, I never would have imagined in a million years that they would be at this place. Let me tell you something. That can work the other way around too. That can go the other way. person that's broken, battered, by the wreckage of sin, down, discouraged, depressed, all kinds of destruction in their life, when the things of God begin to fill that vessel and flow in that, you could also say to yourself, I never would have thought, but praise God, that that person would ever be turned around and be in the place that I see them today. Let me tell you something. I abused drugs for over 10 years of my life. 
heavily and I abused my body for long periods of time without any regard. And here I am today. I'm a, I'm a restored man, and I'm just thankful for the mercies of God. But I'm just telling you, you see me now. If you knew me in my teens, you would have never predicted this. You would have never. You don't have to agree with that. <laughs> Golly. But just like that double-minded path that leads to the brokenness and the shattered nature of sin, it can work the other way around. Let me tell you something. When, when sin begins to enter into our life, and, and we're human, right? So let's say we trip, we fall, we make a mistake. What are you going to do with that? That is the question. Because God gives us a solution. He gives us an antidote. But if we don't do that, then what happens is we carry that around and then we just take it with us, and we keep filling it up with more, and we keep carrying that, and eventually that has the greater influence in our lives than the path of godliness does. But God gives us an antidote. It says this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin, which repent, that he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So when we sin, because we're humans, and we recognize that we've erred from the path of God, we need to do something with that. And it's not just keep carrying it around. It's take that to God. Lord, I've grieved you. I'm not sorry because I got caught. I'm sorry because I've offended you. I've erred against your desire for my body and for my life. And now I'm bringing it to you. And the Bible says as sure as the blood of Jesus is effective to save us from the, sin, the curse of sin and death, that blood is effective to wash us clean of any of that sin that we take to God in the moment we recognize that we've done that. And that's a beautiful picture because whew, he washes us clean in our, I mean, our moment of penitence. When the heart decides it's sorry and it wants forgiveness, God is ready with forgiveness immediately at that moment. That's significant. So this is our vertical relationship, right? In our relationship with God, we carry sin around. It separates us. It desensitizes us to his ways and to godliness. We ask for forgiveness. Immediately, he washes us clean. He sees it no more. It's gone. There's no separation anymore. But this is where sometimes people struggle. And this is, you need to hear this. This is immediate. But our earthly relationships horizontally do not necessarily always work that way. It's just a little bit more complicated. Yes, we should forgive immediately and move on. I get all that, but healing takes time. Sometimes the wreckage and the damage by a lifestyle of sin over a period of time, yeah, God forgives us right away, and we need to know we're forgiven by him, but there might still be a path of reconciliation and restoration and healing that needs to be walked out to repair our earthly relationships. Follow me? But you got to understand that God... He's not like, well, we'll give it a little bit of time. You're sorry, I, I know, but let me, let, me, let me see that you're serious. Let me watch you for a while. It happens here. I get it. It, it, it makes sense. But here, if we walk around, we're carrying, as the Bible says, you shouldn't carry the condemnation of sin. Once we've been forgiven, if we carry it around like we're not forgiven, then we're living under a cloud now, and that's not freedom. So I got a little illustration I want to show you that I, I think kind of paints this picture, right? So... Let's say that this 
this jar, this clear glass jar, that way, is uh, our body. It's our earthly vessel. And the water that's in there is the things of God, right? The, the, the things of godliness. So he comes and fills us with his spirit. He has his ways planned out for us, and we're to pursue and desire those things, not the things of the world. And we walk in a fallen, broken world where sin is always dogging our trail. It's always tempting us and luring us. And it comes at us from every direction. Any place the enemy can get in, he'll take. He doesn't care. He'll just, wherever he can. He tried to get through us through other people, too. And whenever we allow that stuff to come in, and temptation rolls over into sin, is that, you understand, temptation is the, is the initial onset. When we harbor that, we act it out, we do something with it, we think that thought too, like, it rolls over into sin. And then what happens is that that stuff, as we give the flesh what it wants, let's just say that this oil becomes like the sin, the things of the flesh. And I specifically use this, these uh, chemicals in the illustration because it, Many of you probably know, oil and water do not mix, right? In fact, there was a huge uh, disaster in 2010 where there was an oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. It was called the Deepwater Horizon. There's like 200 million gallons of oil that was dumped into the ocean. They're still trying to get oil out. It's like almost next to impossible to separate the oil out of water once these two things mix. Now, in the flesh... It's impossible to do something with sin once we let it in. But in the spirit, here's what happens. 1 John 1, 9. He says, if you repent and you confess, I will forgive you and cleanse you, which means get rid of the stain of that sin, that filth. I will remove it completely by the blood of Jesus, and it will be gone. It will be there no more. So these shop towels... They're very specific cloths, and they're inventing all this stuff now to try to get oil out of water. They're coming up with new inventions regularly to still try to soak that oil up out of the water in the ocean and other places. But these cloths are made of a material called polypropylene, which is known to absorb oil faster and, and first before it does water. Professor Matt here, okay? <laughs> and so you take these cloths. This would be like, I'm sorry, I repent. And the blood of Jesus just soaks up, washes away. All that sin. And now that which is seemingly impossible to separate in a moment and in an instant is gone. Because the blood of Jesus is that powerful. It's that effective. And now... I can move forward as a cleansed vessel from the filth of which I fell into. And I have to do that and not carry it if I want to walk out the path of godliness for my life. we got to get strong. We've got to rule over the flesh. And listen, we've got to know this is our solution that God gives us. This is the antidote to deal with sin in our lives, but not just when it happens 
but we actually have the power and the authority that I hope that you do as a strong Christian to run sin out of your life in every season that you live. So sensitive that to when the onset of it happens, you draw a line. I will not let that thing in. I'm stopping it at the door. I'm taking authority over it, and I'm running it out of my life. I won't look at that. We won't see those things in this house. We're not going to do those things with our flesh. I'm not going to allow myself to do that and think it's okay. We're going to draw a line, and we're going to run sin right out of the door. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Live with that kind of authority, not kicked around and battered around. I want the things of God, but I'm just a wave in the sea because I let myself have whatever it wants. He says, no, that's not the testimony of a child of God. And we can. Folks, we can run this stuff out of our lives. We can rule over the flesh. We can, but only in Christ. The man of Jesus Christ is how we do that. But I hope you do because you got to run it out of your life. You got to run it out of your kids' lives. You got to run it out of your grandkids' lives. Generational curses and blessings are real. And it's up to the patriarchs and the matriarchs and the leaders of households to say, we're drawing a line. We won't stand for that. Not be a weak vessel that allows those things in because that will affect the third and fourth generations to come if we don't stop it at the door. But praise God, we should celebrate. Jesus says, I've made a way. I have a solution. There's not a lot of paths. You don't have a bunch of different options in the world to deal with that, but there is one way. My blood that atoned for all that, if you come to me, we'll settle that and we'll deal with that at the moment that your heart is convicted and sorrowful for the sin that's been committed. And you'll have authority to run that out of your life. I want to live where the spirit is strong in me. I want to live where the flesh serves the spiritual things of God in my life not the other way around. Too many people in our world today, I think, have it backwards. And let I say, even in the church, even in the church, and it's a bad testimony. God deserves better. He's calling us to a higher place, and he's given us a way to live that. I love that. He never leaves us hanging. He's always got a solution for the things that he calls us to. He calls us to it. He will also equip us for that. Amen? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I thought we would end today just, you know, for each person here, and, and I, I feel like there's just got to be people who the Lord's convicting you about things. He convicts me all the time about stuff. And we got to know what to do with that. Maybe it's getting forgiveness for something you've allowed into your life that you know is destructive. Maybe it's that and you need strength to run this thing out. Stop it at the door. Maybe you're holding strong, but you feel like you need more strength. Say, Lord, would you inspect me? Would you sift me, God? 
Paul says, I don't even trust myself to do that to myself. I can't judge myself. I'm biased. <laughs> That's what he says. He says, but the Spirit searches things that are unsearchable. So search me, God, right now. Let this be your prayer. Search me, God. Seek me out. Inspect my heart, my ways, my life. If there be any iniquity in me, God, expose it and reveal it. Really good chance there's people here that things are already being called out right now. You can just do nothing with that and walk out of here and carry it with you today. I don't believe that outcome will be favorable for you. Or you can deal with this right now in a way that I pray is a pattern of how you deal with these things in your life from here on out. Take this thing to the cross. Get at the feet of Jesus. Say, God, I give it to you right now. Would you take it away from me? Would you cleanse me of that? Would you forgive me? I am so sorry, God. Not because I got caught or not because I am experiencing displeasure. I'm sorry, God, because whatever I've done has grieved you. Allow the Lord to just remove that right now. Wash and cleanse me. Experience the lifting of the weight of sin. The lightness in your step that freedom produces. And I pray, God, that you would increase the strength in every single person here today. Lord, that we would run sin out of our lives. We would be defensible in our temple. And that we would regard them as holy, honorable, for the highest reason of all, God, that you occupy this place. In Jesus' name. If you're here today also, and, and maybe you're saying, you know, I've never actually given my heart to Christ. I've never fully surrendered to him and made him my Lord and Savior. Maybe you walked away and you haven't walked with him in a long time and you want to get back. You know, salvation... When we come to Christ for the first time and surrender, God eradicates the sin nature that separates us from him. He eradicates that out of our lives. When we're born into the earth, we're born dead spiritually. Alive physically, but dead spiritually. And when we surrender to Christ, he washes us of our sin nature, and then his spirit comes to live inside of us for the very first time. And now we actually have life not only physically, but spiritually. We're given the promise of eternity in heaven. And if you say today, I need that. I, I want to give my heart to Christ. Surrender. Or I want to get back to walking with him. Just all over the place while heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. If you say, that's me, Pastor. I want that prayer. On the count of three, would you raise your hand so I can see who you are? And I just, I want to lead you in this prayer. Like, today can be your day. Never the same again greatest and most important question you will ever be faced with this side of eternity is what will you do with Jesus? Nothing else matters more than that because that affects eternity. Say, I, I want to give my heart to Christ or come back to him today. On the count of three, would you raise your hand?
One, two, three. All over this place. God bless you, ma'am. I see your hand. God bless you. God bless you. Today is your day. Anybody else? I want to get back to walking with Christ. Yes, I see your hand. God bless you. Praise you, brother. Hallelujah.